We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Glamorous Trash. This is a podcast that used to be called Celebrity Book Club, but we had a little name change. We had a little makeover like a month ago. On this podcast, we recap and book club celebrity memoirs. We pontificate about pop culture. And sometimes, if it's a real doozy, we cry. If you have ever referenced Mariah Carey in therapy, then this is probably the podcast for you. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. This episode, we will be recapping and discussing Julia Fox's memoir titled Down the Drain, published just last month in 2023. This is the most bonkers, bananas, wild ride of a book that I have read in some time. It was the complete opposite of what I was expecting, which was a thrilling journey. I also must shout out that Julia did a book tour and every outfit she wore on her book tour was amazing. It's really just a bunch of outfits that show full vag while being fully clothed in other places. It's like parts of her thigh covered in fabric and like big shoulder pads. I will post it all on the Patreon. I loved it. So let's dive in. And of course, we have to play the viral interview she gave about her book last year before we can start this book club journey. Is there one project that you really want to do that's your dream project? Oh my God, my book, of course. Yeah. Well, I don't want to give too much of it away because I'm very superstitious, so I don't don't like to speak of things before they're finished. Um, But it's... Um, so far a masterpiece if I do say so myself so I hope that is it fiction is it a memoir what is no it? it was like a memoir at first but now it's just like my first book 
you know? Our guest today starred for six seasons on the NBC hit comedy Superstore and currently stars as Lexi on the ABC series Not Dead Yet. You've also seen her on Another Period, Super Fun Night, Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, Lars and the Real Girl, and the Oscar-nominated film The Disaster Artist. And... A lot more because she is busy and she has a phenomenal podcast, which I love, True Crime and Cocktails. Please welcome Lauren Ash. Hello. It's so good to see you. Um, I want to plug your music here. You have a whole ass music career. Can you please tell everyone? Uh, Yeah, I've released some music, but most currently I've released a three song Christmas EP. It's all pop punk. One original song, two covers. I love Christmas more than I think most people. So for me, it's just been an absolute dream and a half. It's you and Mariah. It's me and Mariah. Anyway, it's called Sad This Christmas. You can get it everywhere that you can get music. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I love that. And on my podcast, I introduce all my guests with the story of how we first met to kind of show how female friendships and relationships uh, have a little meet cute. So Lauren, I feel like I should start this story because I uh, watched you on the main stage at Second City and when I was taking classes and I just looked up to you, I thought you were so funny. And so I was obsessed with you. And then I write on Not Dead Yet. You star on Not Dead Yet. And we met on set. Yeah. I think there was a bit of a DM slide situation at one point because I feel like we had both kind of independently known of the other person for a very yeah. long time. But then the show was like tangibly bringing us together for the first time. And it was such a joy uh, getting to work together on that first season of, of Not Dead Yet. Chelsea is so funny and so smart. I paid Lauren to say that. No, Lauren, <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, so <laughs> I was like, what do you think about doing the Julia Fox book? Maybe let's tell people who she is. Who did you think, your perspective before this book, who is Julia Fox? Julia Fox is the woman that Kanye West dated after Kim that we all saw the photos of. Yes. And then I was reminded that she also did technically star in in Josh Safdie's movie, Uncut Jams. Yes. (laughs) Because she just rose to such a moment with the Kanye thing that I forgot that I was like, oh no, she actually was in a legitimate film. And then of course that clip of her came out talking about how she was Josh Safdie's muse in Uncut Jams. So I, I guess I would call her predominantly like, She's not a socialite, but I feel like she's like a she's an it girl. She's She's a true, a true New York it girl. Uh, I remembered Julia Fox because, you know, I read everything about the entertainment industry. I love interviews with actors. And I remember when Uncut Gems was coming out, there was an interview she gave. I think it's in Vanity Fair. I'll post it where she says very distinctly. I always wanted to act, but I held out because Josh Safdie really wanted to be the one to discover me. And he really wanted to put me on the map. So like I let him do it. And I just thought that is the most telling verbiage of a cuckoo bananas take because in an impossible industry to break into, you know, it's like I was going to be discovered. I gave the honor to him. And so This book actually really shocked me because that was kind of all I had of her was that in the Kanye tour. Overall takeaway from the book, what did just a big old vibe? What did you think? Wildlife. Hard to follow the story. Highlighting things, but then not highlighting details. And listen, I know we'll get into all of it, but like 
there was such chunks for me that were missing because I do think her story is very compelling. Yeah. But there was just a little bit of connective tissue missing for me pretty much consistently through the whole thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, that quote of like, you know, my book is a masterpiece is so it's such an incredible quote. So that really sets your book up to fail. That is a quote that went viral. It's setting you up to fail. And I came out of this thinking her life is a masterpiece. What she lived through and the choices she made is an artistic masterpiece. When it comes to the actual writing of the book, I have qualms, but I think what she lived through is like, yeah, that's a fucking story. It it honestly feels like, you remember when there was that trend of movies in the 90s, like kids? Yes, it feels like kids. Everyone loved those like gritty teens are doing bad things. Like that was like such a kind of pop culture hit, I feel like in that time. And that's what her story feels like. So this book for me felt like there's a line of children's books, Wicked and Elphaba probably being the most famous one, where they take the villain's stories and they say now from their angle, you know, Maleficent was one. And this is that book for me where, and I think she's the villain in some of these stories without realizing it, but it's like, we knew her as the villain of of Kanye's like weird girlfriend of Uncut Joms. And it's like now from her side. And then you realize like, oh, we were so wrong about you. Like you came from such hardships. You made it through so, like that's what this book was for me, which I loved. And it reminds me of some of the darkest years of my life when I was like really fucked up where like there's a whole ass fucking Romeo and Juliet drama every 48 hours with different people. But then she wrote all of it, all of it. (laughs) Yeah. Like every, how many characters do you think are in this book? Like how many names? It's so hard to follow. There's times where I was like, wait a second, who is this person? Give us a reminder. Have we heard the name before? I spent a large chunk of like the mid to to late part of the book just trying to figure out how she knew Harmony. I was like, which one was Harmony? Oh my God. Because she ends a chapter. She was like, there was only one person who I could road trip to Louisiana with, Harmony. And I, I wrote, who the fuck is Harmony? Yes. And I thought about it and thought about it. I went back in the book. I realized that's Harmony's introduction. We never met Harmony before. Okay. Okay. That makes me feel better. Cause I was like, was it the woman that she met in AA? Was it the, was it something, whatever, not to skip ahead, but she also really indulges in the flowery descriptions, right? So she'll get in one of these tangents about like the scent of this woman's hair was like blueberries in a pie sitting on a window in Connecticut. Like, like, it's just like the detail that she'll put in and then she'll be like, and then I met, I met a man and I married him two months later anyway. And I'm like, wait a second, (laughs) we're going to gloss over every detail. Now, granted, there may be some legal reasons she can't talk about him. Say that. Well, yeah, (laughs) it's so interesting you say that too, because if I were to note this book, I would be like, give us so much less. Like you have to cut out maybe a third of the storylines, but then go into the two thirds that you keep and do what you're saying, which is yes, more context, build out the story, explain this thing. But like, I can see why she is, she has to skim over things because she has 1000 nightmares to write yeah. down. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And it's just chaos, chaos, chaos. So, okay. One of my favorites opening dedications, maybe ever. I'm going to read it. Okay, here we go. To my dad, thank you for pushing me to write, even when I struggled to find the words. Thanks for the mistakes you made, which I turned into art. No matter where life's journey takes me, for better or for worse, all roads lead back to you. But please, whatever you do, in all caps, do not read this book. And I thought that was really funny and I liked it. 
Yeah. I mean, this is the man who locked her in her bedroom for days at a time and she would have to go to the bathroom in the the cat's litter box. But it's nice that she's seemingly gotten over that. (laughs) So true. And, you know, I will say at that point in the book, I didn't know that yet. So I was just like, what a fun intro. (laughs) It was. Yeah, it was like, oh, that's nice. Also interesting. No mention of her mother in that dedication. I think very quickly in the book, we we get the impression, I'd say within the first three pages, that she's got some real feelings of negativity towards the the mother. Uh, The mom is the biggest question mark for me in the whole book. And to give some context, in 1996, she comes from Italy to America with her dad. And she is, how old is she here? She's young. But this is the thing. The the first part of the book, it's so hard to know how old she is because she's jumping around in time and place. And I do think, again, this is one of the things where I'm like, I think it might be nice for context to know, like, coming to America, like, what a huge culture shock. Yeah. Especially as a young child who probably only speaks Italian. Like, what a wild time. Age would be a an interesting thing to know. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. And on page 11 is when she's talking about her dad locking her in her room for an entire day. It's sort of just him and her alone. Then at some point, her mom and brother arrive. The brother's almost not in the book at all. And her mom, I never knew why her mom was in Italy most of the time, but also sometimes in America, in New York City. I didn't know any reason for anything. I just said, who is the mom? Who's the mom? Amorphous mom. And she hates her. And she hates her mom. She hates her mom. And I mean, listen, not to get into therapy talk this quick, but I'm like, clearly it's that she just felt abandoned by her. I mean, I think it's pretty pretty black and white. Like, Oh, yeah. But my question is, so it's a mother, a father, a daughter, a son. The choice is inexplicably made for father and daughter to go to New York City and mother and son to stay in Italy. And like you're saying, they would come over sometimes for periods. There's one point where it's like, then she gets much later in the book, the mother gets pregnant again. And it's like, my mom went on maternity leave. And I'm like, from what job? What is she doing over there? Also, the dad had already had an affair with another woman who got pregnant and said the child was his. And at that point, I thought like, oh, that's when her mom and her dad divorced because the mom finds out she gets so mad. She's gone. But then they're back together and she's pregnant later. Yeah. And I imagine for her, it was very confusing. Like she doesn't know these answers. She probably doesn't understand what happened in her early childhood. Uh, It's just tough in a memoir to not go like find the answers. Or even talk about how confusing it was. Yeah. Like acknowledged what the what the reader is feeling at this moment, which is like, this sounds extreme and very traumatizing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it was quite traumatizing to get ripped away from your mother as a little girl and then suddenly you're in New York City. One of the lines I really enjoyed was, quote, the only option was to move on to a 20-foot sailboat. Is that the only option? <laughs> yeah. I, I guess that's a question of mine. Yeah. And I do. (laughs) I did start watching some of her TikToks and things as I was reading the book. And I realized, like, I think a lot of this is is she has a sense of humor in all of this. And I really love her. I really love her social media, which is a funny thing to say. And tell me if you agree or disagree, even though there's lots of context and timelines missing, there's so many details. I still in I was enjoying it. Like, it's not 
There's this quote I love by Sarah Rule. Interesting moments are more interesting than non-interesting moments. This is one interesting woman. Like everything is super interesting. It's not boring. Not at all. It's just, yeah. yeah not yeah. at all. And again, I should also be clear. I listened to the audiobook, which is also a wild ride to, to, to sit and hear her tell you the story. Also adds a layer, I think. But I, I didn't want to put it down. I mean, I listened to this on a flight for like five hours, like with no breaks. That's so much. So much. Um, but it's wildly compelling. And when she gets into her teenage, years, uh, I think around 16 from there for me, there's a huge chunk that I think is actually really great. And I think it's actually quite well written. Oh yeah. And it, it was wildly compelling, uh, heartbreaking in, in obviously many ways. But again, I think for me, it was just, I, f- I found the journey to that point. Just, just, it was just me with genuine questions, wanting contexts. Yeah, I, I agree. So we're going to have to skip a lot, but some big childhood highlights are just that, uh, extreme poverty, Her dad's like biking her to school, doing drugs. Like she is more than a latchkey kid. She's free. She just, she lives in the city. And sometimes there's a cat litter box at the house for her. It's extremely abusive, but also she's a child. She still loves her dad. And then um, get your drinking bingo out. 9-11 story, 9-11 to purpose pipeline. She says, on a scorching hot September morning during my first week of sixth grade, she's sitting in her humanities class when a plane strikes the World Trade Center. There's a lot of 9-11 stories in the memoirs, but she's actually in New York City as a child and how horrifying that was. And the worst part is that all the kids, their parents come and get them except for her. And everyone's picked up and she's the last student left and she's trying to bide her time and finally her dad comes he excitedly tells me that once the first plane hit he grabbed his camera and took his boat out getting as close as he could to film the wreckage I wish he would have picked me up so I could have gone with him on the way home he mutters something about World War III and I think he's exaggerating the next day there's no school I go to Josh's where every channel on TV airs the same footage of the buildings collapsing onto themselves over and over again I just want to ignore it but I can't yeah I mean that tells us so much about her father Right. That it's like this adult man who has a young child that he is, of course, in care of. Yeah. In this moment of this absolutely who knew what was what was next. Right. Like the the day of 9-11 in the real time in New York City, my assumption would be that there would be a lot of fear and terror and, and not knowing if you're safe. And the idea that he chose to get on a boat to film it, what, to like sell the footage, it sounds like to me, like, yeah, and leave your daughter just alone at her school, like, and listen, maybe she doesn't feel a certain way about it, but I think those were the moments where I then was automatically going back to that dedication in the book going like, dedicated this to him, huh? Like, wow, (laughs) what what a wonderful capacity for forgiveness this gal has, you know, like it just felt like these are some pretty, um, yeah, traumatic things. What's Interesting too, I think that that connected me to the book a lot is there's a certain type of renegade, impoverished, trash man maverick um, <laughs> that I know intimately, you know, uh, stepdads that are just like, there's no money, but there is a boat. That type of um, impossibility in a human, but they're just thriving. I felt like I really knew him well, but I don't think we know him well in the book. No. I, I don't even know what he looks like. I agree. I, yeah, we don't really know him. And again, like, there is the story she tells about 
how he gets involved, like investing in that film, I think it was called Fire Dancer. Yes. <laughs> um, and then she glosses over that there was a murder, that somebody involved oh, in it I was murdered. I thought it murdered. was funny. I thought it was her being funny. Like, I got my first role and then, you know what? They murdered the director and hey, that's Hollywood, baby. <laughs> maybe it was. I think maybe also it's because I was hearing her tell me this as opposed to reading it that maybe she was just deadpanning a lot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> You're right. I don't know her delivery. Yeah, the yeah. delivery never felt like, um, yeah, it didn't feel like it was necessarily comedic. But again, that might be part of the art. That might be part of of this this overall Julia Foxism. It's very just like what happened and every single thing that happened. It's almost like like you're just hitting all of it. Yes. She talks about how when she is 11 years old, her first kiss is with a 26-year-old man. Yeah. And pretty horrifying it's but you know she is smart enough to like run away and and hide before he comes out of the bathroom and pushes for more and it's just kind of left there but that's how you realize like what kind of childhood she's having which is just she's running away she's getting sick all the time I weirdly think like a part of me was like this is an amazing young adult book even though it's rated RRRRRRR because the way she writes about friendships and the phone calling and who's online and when and what party and what boy and the crushes I was like oh this spoke to the part of me that's like 13 waiting for a guy to call but then there's a party at blah blah's house you know yes 100% and I think for me it was that mixed with like just such horror at at what these young girls were being exposed to and doing. And and then I feel like an old lady. I feel like a Nana going like, they weren't really doing that, were they? (laughs) Um, On our podcast, we often talk about this list of women that I feel society failed. And we call them our blanket girls, where it's like, I just want to get a warm blanket from the dryer and and wrap them in it. Britney Spears, for example, it's a blanket gal. Marilyn Monroe. These are gals that like society failed and there is definite um throughout this there's definite times where i was like oh i want to wrap you in a blanket julia i love that so much yeah on our podcast we have a segment called women we need to check on and those are just sort of tangent characters and i feel like every single one of julia's friends like trish she gotta be checked on rose she gotta be checked on we gotta check on these ladies i also was like what is this school that she's going to that has some kids that go there that are living in like a hoarder apartment with three people who are full out, strung out on drugs in it. But then there's also someone who's from the Bronx, also someone who lives in a penthouse on Fifth Avenue. Like, what was this school? That does feel like New York City to me, where yeah. they have all so many schools and so many different like neighborhood zip code lines of what can get you into like what school. Yeah. I, I'm also, I, I, ha- I have these years of my life, uh, 14 through 17, where I just fully related to all of this, but not in New York City, in just the tiniest, shittiest town. And so, so there was a lot of me that was like, yeah, yeah, totally. I know that, like, yeah, which, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. which was not great. And so tell me if you, I'm going to call as many out as I can, Please. but there were, I'm going to say six to 10 tiny stories where I thought to myself, you are actually the villain in this story, but you're telling it like you're not, yeah. which is so fucking cool. Like reading it, it was like, oh my God, the other side, um, So like, she's talking about this girl, Alice. She stole my ring in elementary school and I hated her for it. She recently did a complete rebrand and lost a bunch of weight using diet pills that gave her the jitters. She also started tanning and wearing makeup and cute clothes. So we let her in the crew. She said, I suspect this sudden transformation is due to her own secret crush on Tommy. I tease her about it. Ooh, he's like a brother to me. Gross. She brushes me off, but I don't buy it. And I I just thought, oh, 
you're a mean girl then. Like you're not the bullied, you are la bully. And also, of course you are. Your home life is on fire. Yep. Uh, but that was the first tiny little moment when I clocked it and then I clocked it a thousand more times. Yes. Yeah. Well, because then she like goes on to date Tommy or to make a move on Tommy, right? Like it, it yes. very quickly. Constantly, constantly. So the next weird chunk, and I'm going to say weird is because I'm just like, wait, what? She says she convinces her mom to move back to Italy and go to school there alone for the year. And her mom flies her to Italy, drops her off with a family she's going to be living with and leaves. And Julia is sort of like, wait, what? How did I get here? She's in seventh grade. She still wants to be connected to her friends. And she talks about how horrible the host family was to her. But as she's telling the story, she's talking about the young girl who is her age who tells Julia she has a crush on this guy. And then Julia hits on him and then goes to a club and the other girl's too afraid to go. And then she like makes out with him and is like, whatever, that girl's a bitch to me. And I was like, you're actually the one in the wrong. You were actually the foreign American girl stealing this gal's crush. And it should be noted at this point, when she was 12, she said she and her friend got free tattoos and they got their nipples pierced at age 12. Yeah. So this is also like just for context again of like what's rolling into this rural Italian city. <laughs> yeah. It's, there's a bit of a tonal difference, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is that she it's like, yeah, you're 13 left alone in Italy, not realizing the situation. You're in hell. You need so much love. You need your mom back. Yes. It's just funny how then it's not noted that then I stabbed everyone around me in the back, which again, you deserve to do. You were left in Italy by your mom. Totally. But yeah, that is definitely another one of those moments where as she continues to tell the story, you're almost waiting for that lens of reflection from an adult age, right? Yes. You're kind of waiting for that to be like, it was really not great that I did that. Like any kind of, or like, but I was reeling so hard right. and I, I needed a mom so bad. I didn't, I was in a foreign country. I, you know, yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't really come. No. And the thing that's wild is she's gone back to Italy and then her mother is back in the U.S. at that time. Yeah. Which is like, wait, I thought your mom was in Italy. Um, yes. And she has a grandparent in Italy, her grandpa, yes. who she... So, so she makes one friend there who I, we're going to come back to, Veronica. Yes, of course. So I'm going to recap a long and wild story of her first huge relationship. It's a lot. It might get confusing. I'm going to do my best. But basically, when she's in Italy, she misses her friend Rose. And she's always trying to talk to Rose and calling her and she can't get her on the phone. And she finds out that Rose has moved on with a guy named Ace. And she's jealous of Ace because he's taking up Rose's attention. She looks up his MySpace. And then finally, she gets back to America, and then she meets Ace with her friend Trish. And Trish is like, Rose got locked up in rehab, um, but this is Ace, her ex-boyfriend. And here's the page of Ace. <laughs> we forget there's an audience and have sex like we're the last two people on Earth, and the human race depends on it. I climb on top of him, still under the covers, and I ride him until I feel the fireworks in my vagina, and I come all over him. It's my first penetrative orgasm, and I'm overwhelmed by the euphoric bomb that just exploded between us. So she meets him and has sex with him in front of their friends. She's on drugs. She's on E. Yes. I believe. Molly, maybe. And has sex with her best friend's boyfriend immediately. Yes. Immediately. Yeah. And there's not really an acknowledgement of no. like, and then you guys, eight hours after she has sex with Ace constantly, her best friend's ex-boyfriend, who she's waiting for Rose to get back, 
they get tattoos, matching tattoos. Of each other's uh, names. Of each other's names. That's yeah. night, which yes, we are definitely speaking to the drugs. And then she goes back to Italy and then she's talking to Ace and then she flies back home. But this was another story where I said, wait a minute, <laughs> you, you loved Rose. <laughs> you can't so much. do this. So much. I know. And look, I guess maybe there's a part of her that feels like this is my story and this is what I did and I own it and and it is what it is, which on one hand I can respect, I guess, in a sense. But I hear you that I do feel like... <laughs> um, and listen, maybe I'm pearl clutching. And I don't think of myself as in general being a pearl clutcher. I was pretty out there in high school, but like having sex on drugs at 13 in front of a room full of people with your best friend's boyfriend and then getting his name tattooed on you in 13, I'm like, it felt extreme for me. And maybe I'm wrong. And maybe that's what I should be taking away from this. Maybe this was typical <laughs> in New York City at that time, you know, in the early 2000s. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think for the for me as a reader or a listener, I guess you could say, wanting to hear some connections through the adult voice, I think would have helped us along the journey a little bit in these chunks. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's be clear here. On a spectrum, Julia's on the extreme side. We have to say this, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she is 15, I think, at this point. Excuse me, of course. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if that makes it largely better for you, but I do believe she's 15. I also want to make it clear I'm not judging her behavior, truly. I found myself just very concerned for her. And I would have hoped that as an adult, she would maybe look back and, and have concern for her at that time. Yes. And I found myself being like, yeah, I went to that party. And again, in my tiny shit town, but I wasn't the person having sex in front of people, but I, I was the girl in the corner being like, oh. Oh, same, same. This shit happened at places that I was at that age. Yes. But then I look back on that now and I go, I think about those girls that were doing it. And I'm like, oh, oh no. All of us, all of us blankets immediately. We need such a king, a California king size blanket. It's gotta be so big for just everyone. <laughs> so big. And I think for the most part, her writing style is first person in the moment, what it felt like when she was that age and it was happening. Yeah. But sometimes she'll pop out and give us hindsight. And so the book kind of switches between first person, like I'm not really telling you how I, how I feel as an adult looking back. And then other times she does tell us a little bit how she feels looking back. And it's very confusing because she goes back and forth. And so then you just assume anytime she didn't give us any hindsight, what she's writing is how she actually feels the event with. It's not very consistent. And okay, so let's go to the next section. It's impossible to fully cover it. So let me just give the big overlapping arc, which is that Ace is a drug dealer who is abusive. He is also a teenager and she's in an intense relationship with him. Rose will never come back. Trish is kind of a bitch, but so is Julia to each other. Mm -hmm. And at some point he is going to go with brass knuckles and kick the shit out of someone on yep. the behalf of a boarding school boy. Mm -hmm. It was like a boarding school boy who was like, I'll buy drugs from you if you beat up these kids who are bullying me. And then this sort of maybe 19-year-old man puts on brass knuckles and fights a t child outside of a boarding school and drives off. The cops come looking for him. There's a lot of people involved. And he sort of kidnaps Julia and they go on the run. Kidnapping being like, you have to come with me. She's a child. 
and is at sometimes willing and not willing. And she becomes a missing person in New York City. I just feel like her recounting of the relationship with him is so compelling and so well written. Like this chunk for me, I was just like, it really does show how you can, especially as a young girl, you can get into that dynamic and just can't get out. I thought that she really, in a very heartbreaking way, captured it. But I think the detail that almost was the most heartbreaking was she is missing. It gets reported to her parents. They don't know where she is. And so there's a series of missing posters that go up and her parents have gotten all of the details about her wrong. Her height is wrong. I think her age was wrong. Her age is, like her weight is wrong. Her weight is like, wrong. Like the whole thing. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> like what must that have done at this yeah. time where she is in this relationship where she thinks that this man who is very abusive to her is the only thing she has. And then it's being reaffirmed to her through the missing posters publicly everywhere in the city. Yes. And then he runs around and grabs all the missing posters and she hears him making a plan to ask her parents for ransom money for her. And one of my favorite things in the whole book is the hair dryers. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say this? Yes. Yes. Hair dryers save this woman's life like 10 times. I wish it was on the cover. So many times. It is phenomenal where she's in just so many situations where men are checking on her, trapping her, catching her, and she's trying to hide something. And she goes in the bathroom and turns on the hairdryer to take care of business. And here's one of the first times. She goes in the bathroom. She turns on the hairdryer. She calls her dad. It took you guys three weeks to notice I was even missing. And you chose the ugliest photos of me for the poster. All the information on it is wrong. You were never going to find me with that. Trust me. Just stop looking for me. I'm doing great. And if anyone calls about a ransom, don't give the money. I'm fine. Goodbye. I hang up the phone before he can answer and shut off the hairdryer. I walk into the living room and dig a roach out of the ashtray and light it at the window, watching the outside world go round without me. And... It is several more weeks before they turn themselves in from being on the run. And I I can't emphasize this enough. Drugs are in every single inch and crevice of this book, maybe up until the very end. Yes. And when she gets reunited with her mom, her mom says, you've gained so much weight, which (sighs) normally it's a dad calling their daughter fat. In this book, it's a mom calling her daughter fat. Take a drink anyway on your drinking bingo. We drink for it either way. (laughs) And... Ace gets put in Rikers Island. Like, uh, I, and she goes to visit him. Yes. And they get into kind of an altercation. Yes. Also, like, this argument. And, of course, the guards are, like, freaking out. What is this 16-year-old girl doing here? Uh. Arguing. And this prison is one of the most hardcore prisons in the United States. Often featured on Law & Order SVU. It is (laughs) no joke. So, then he is such a little mob boss of the city yes. that he is able to track her from prison. And when she goes back home and tries to get away from him, he knows where she is if she's dating someone new. It's a highly abusive relationship. She is so young. And she at one point goes to die by suicide and slit her wrists. And it's kind of unclear if she meant to do it or was just... I I, I couldn't really get the read on it. She needs help in some way for sure. But then when 
she is put uh, in the psychiatric hospital. She says, you know, that's not what she was intending with it. She was just trying to scare Ace. And then Ace gets her number in the psychiatric hospital, calls her from prison. And she's like, I just want to stay in the hospital. I don't want to go home because Ace will find me because he's driving her crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's such a horror show. It's one of those things where you go back to like Trish had said to her, like, you don't know him. He's crazy. And listen, we've all been there. We've all been dating someone. And then someone's like, I don't think he's a good guy. And you're like, it's fine. You don't know him. <laughs> this this just goes to such a level again when it's her first kind of like real relationship or the first real relationship she talks about. Let's put it that way. Yeah. How terrifying. What a terrifying experience. And how young you are. And what a tremendously abusive and chaotic childhood and then into this. And the one detail, too, is that when she's on the run with Ace, they're staying with his mother. And she talks very fondly about his mother, about how she was lovely to her and they really felt like family and whatnot, even though, again, the mother was also kind of turning a blind eye to some abuse that was happening, obviously. But then the other moment that broke my heart, I believe it was before she went in the psych ward, was she went back there. Before going to her own home, she went back there to the, to his mom and was like, hey, we're family. Can I be here? And she was like, oh, I guess. Yeah. And it was like, again, I'm like, this girl is trying desperately to connect, desperately to yeah. like have any sort of ally with someone that she feels safe with. And that's a theme that comes up so many times in the book is that it's like, and then yet again, it falls apart. And I tried really hard and it falls apart. Like it's this kind of constant with women, especially too, the female relationship she has. Yes. And when she goes back, she finds out that Ace has been cheating on her the whole time. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. It's so much. And she finally breaks free of the relationship and she says she's not going to be his property anymore. This part of her life is over and she's going to get the tattoo covered up. And directly from there, she poses semi-nude for a prominent street artist. Yes. Soon my body is splashed across canvases all over West Broadway. I still can't legally drink, but my image is now on display in nightclubs all over Manhattan. It even makes a cameo in a popular reality TV spinoff show at the Gansevoort Hotel. Are we assuming that that was the city? Is that the, re the, the popular reality show spinoff? The Hills oh. spinoff? Oh, yeah. Okay. It has to be, I, right? I was so like, what? Yeah. That that's what I focus on. I'm like, oh, I think that was Whitney Ports, the, the city. I think that was Whitney Ports, the city. No, thank you so much for that. Because <laughs> I, I was actually so caught up in like, how'd you meet this? And the nude and the what? Like, I was just like, where did, how did, that I totally skipped that like, yeah, what reality show did that appear on? And okay, so then- her one friend, Veronica, in Italy has become friends with her mom, who is now back in Italy. And yes. her grandpa dies. And Veronica goes to the funeral on her behalf. And she starts to write like that. It really annoyed me that she could go and I couldn't. And then Veronica comes back and starts living with them in New York. And meanwhile, she is stealing purses with Liana, who's her friend, who's going to like be her like diehard for life. And but then she writes this about Veronica. Veronica makes collages for me when I'm at school. She hangs the artwork on the wall, proudly displaying her adoration for me. She writes me love letters, thanking me for taking her in and how meeting me is the best thing that ever happened to her. 
I'm flattered at first, but then it starts to get annoying. She wants to come everywhere with me and she wears all my clothes, carelessly damaging them. One night I walk in on her hooking up with my good friend's boyfriend, putting me in the worst position imaginable. Why would you do that? She shrugs and laughs it off. It didn't mean anything. And I pause here because, Julia, the amount of friends, boyfriends or crushes up to this point alone who Julia went and slept with is minimum three. (laughs) minimum. Julia is mad at Veronica for doing the thing she's done the whole book, but she doesn't call it out. And now she's framing it as like, how could Veronica do that to me? But she fully did it to Rose just a few pages back. Then she said the sound of her voice begins to irk me. Things start to bother me I never paid attention to before, like her wearing my panties, her permanent cough from smoking so many cigarettes, her perpetual runny nose. When she begins acting like me, copying my mannerisms and attitude, I finally had enough. I no longer feel comfortable sleeping on the same mattress as her. And to escape, I begin spending more time at Liana's house. But no matter what I do, Veronica won't seem to get the hint. And this is one of those where I said, you're the villain. It's not Veronica. And I think maybe I just have a soft spot because I've been the friend where it's like suddenly your cool friend is like, you're annoying. And you're like, but I love you. <laughs> like, I yeah. just want to be a cool friend. Why am I not cool? And I think like a runny nose and a cough and being so fucking impoverished that her parents just sent her to live on your mattress. Uh, I feel bad for Veronica. And then Julia is like, but isn't she the worst? And then Veronica does become the worst and starts sleeping with her father. <laughs> that I just couldn't wrap my head around. I was like, I'm not reading. I'm not listening to this right. Like, there's no way that I'm hearing this. And yeah. 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 But I wish it was connected more of like, obviously Veronica is the most damaged person alive as well. Yeah. And when I blocked her out from the friendship, she then sought love with anyone. And my creepy ass dad was there because then, you know, she calls her mom. She's like, mom, Veronica's sleeping with dad. Her mom's like, get her out of the house for me. Then she is talking about how like Veronica still didn't get how much she hurt her and her, she was going to find Veronica and make her pay. Then one day she realizes that Veronica is living on the boat. <laughs> She's living on that fucking boat. And so she says, one night I'm lying in the bunk bed, obsessively going through every possible scenario in my head. And it hits me. She's on the boat. The next morning I wake up early and bike up the West Side Highway all the way to the 79th Street Marina where Trish and I had gone to hide from the cops a few years before. And then she says, there she is sleeping peacefully on the makeshift bed, completely oblivious to the damage she caused me. And while in the moment as a teenager, yes, I agree. As an adult, can we not see that Veronica's also a victim? A hundred percent. But that's what I also find interesting is, is again, like there's none of that in the writing of this book. There's none of the like acknowledgement. Again, she dedicates the book to the same man that was doing this. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Who it was like, like, this is statutory yes, rape, I think. Yes, if if yes. I was sure of the ages, I'd feel more sure of it. But I, they're definitely not at a high school. They're not at a high school. And again, this is a girl who is from small town Italy in New York City, doesn't really know that many people. Let's also keep this in mind. Isn't going to school, doesn't speak the language. No. Well, kind of right after this, Uh, she steals a purse from a girl in a club, but the girl has like high connections and actually gets them arrested. And Julia goes to jail Mm -hmm. and she's put on probation and she has to stay sober for a year and, and graduate high school. And she eventually does. And she's then looking for a job and she becomes a dominatrix. Yes. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come right back into the episode. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains, but you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role, and we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book, it matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, let's dive back into the episode. What was your favorite dominatrix story? Well, I think one of the quotes for me was that she was talking about how she has excellent improvisational skills. And I was like, slow down. <laughs> Lauren. <laughs> that I was like, did you take a UCB class? Come on. But I think the one that really stuck out to me was the first story she tells where she talks about this guy who wants her to smoke cigarettes and basically blow them into a, I don't know what the terminology is, but a, a mask that he can't, like he has to basically breathe in her secondhand smoke for like an hour. Yeah. And and she talks about how it became exceedingly uncomfortable for her to smoke this many cigarettes in a row, obviously. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, again, it's like that one experience doesn't turn her off. That one experience, no. she goes, oh, no, I'm good at this. I can do this. Which, which I liked that turn. She really yeah. built the dominatrix scenes out. I thought those were some of the best parts as well of like how she realized she was in power. This is something she could do. She takes on the dominatrix named Valentina. Yes. And there's a lot of stories of the costumes and, and the guys and the whatever. But I think my favorite story is at times when she is, I'm going to say a tiny detail. You're like, why do you care about this? But every now and then she, she would write something like this. I storm out of the dungeon, seething with rage and frustration as I bike down the street. And I said, bike. And, and I 
I too know this phase of life so well where you're just like so fucking shit poor, but the outfits you're biking across the city with my, my biking phase was in Chicago, the things I biked in, but I'm just imagining like she's leaving the sex dungeon to get on a bike. She got to unlock it. You know, she got to like get the boots on the, I just said, I love it. I thought you were going to talk about like the relationship she had with the other dominatrixes. Is that yes. the plural? Doesn't matter. And this other person kind of wrongs her, is like saying shit about her and does something. And then doesn't Julia like take a, a shit in her boot or something? Yes. I think she pours pee into her locker. Yeah. I was like, this is escalated, ladies. Like, this is wild. Just the infighting there. Again, it was just not something I saw coming. I I thought again that I guess I thought there would be more camaraderie. And that really speaks more to me (laughs) than anything else. (laughs) Yeah, you thought it was going to be sisterhood of the traveling whip. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. And I was like, wow, I just never thought it would be that competitive. Silly me. And the whole time she's not supposed to be doing drugs. She is. She's using her dad's urine for her drug test. That's what's happening. Again, whoo boy, the father. And she begins to pray for a sugar daddy. Yeah. And here's a little part of the story where I felt like it was a little too made in Manhattan, a little too pretty woman, where she says, I'll do one more call but I'm no longer a dominatrix after this. I'm done. And on that call, she meets Rohan. And he's like, I love you. I want this to be more. And she's like, funny that this was my last day. And Rohan becomes her genuine sugar daddy. Yeah. And she talks about how he says, I've never met anyone like you before. It's so refreshing, he says, as I down six glasses of wine in a row. <laughs> this is funny. That's hilarious. Am I your girlfriend? I ask him, slurring my words. He pauses. I would love that. And she says she falls asleep from the Xanax their first time, but he's loving it. And this relationship is going to last five years. Yeah, yeah. Which was a shock. When she's like, it's been five years. I was like, it's been five years. And the money he gives her really enables her to do several things. One, lots and lots and lots of drugs. Yes. Two, my favorite thing about Julia is when she gets a break, all her friends get a break too. Yeah. So when he's like, I'm going to pay for an apartment, she's like, that's great. It needs two other bedrooms, one for Liana and one for the other friend. Yeah. And- you're going to cover all of our lives. And he would laugh and be like, ha ha ha, I got three for the price of one. And But she's always like, yeah, now everyone lives free. Yes. She lists her exact weight, of course. Again, drinking Migo, take your drink. I quickly start losing weight, go back to a size 2-4 from an 8-10. And this is when she's decided to get sober while she's with Rohan. Yes. And then she writes this. Our bond is doomed when Rohan offers to invest in a fashion line for Liana and me. Again, your very astute observation that there's many stories in which she turns into kind of the villain and, and that, that the fashion line becomes one where like, if I'm skipping ahead, but eventually she's like, I just didn't really want to do it anymore. <laughs> or like Liana's doing all the work and I'm not really doing anything. And I'm like, it sounds not great, Julia. It sounds like you're kind of. <laughs> it kind of sounds like you were given the opportunity of a lifetime. He said, anything you want to do, you can do it. She says fashion line for me and my friends you launch an entire fashion line. It's real. It seems to be hitting. Like she talks about like they're getting their stuff put in fancy stores. They're getting like traction and all of these things. And then it feels like she just wants to blow everything up. Again, this is from my podcast, but putting my psychologist hat on, it feels like, again, she has someone that's like, I genuinely love you and I genuinely want to take care of you. And it feels so intolerable to her because she's never experienced someone 
who genuinely wants to take care of her, that then she's like, this feels uncomfortable and I'm going to do everything to destroy it, which is what she does. Yes, that is a really astute observation. I also, again, have to call out, she has an immense drug use problem that is, I'm sure, contributing to the idea that she is sleeping through the workdays, obviously. (laughs) Yes. While you're like, while he is really written as this really great, kind, caring guy, maybe three quarters through the relationship, it's revealed that he's married. That was wild. This is where I'm a, a stupid little nana bitch. Like, of course he was married, Chelsea. Like you, you're, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. But I said, what? He's married? I honestly felt the same way. I'm going to be honest. I was like, why didn't I think that? I don't know. Obviously, obviously yeah. he's married because you have all this time to do drugs and not be with him. Like, yes. cause he's busy with his family. But I truly believed from her writing that he was such a good guy. <laughs> he does come across as being like a very solid He's written very positively. He's written like kind of that there's no negatives about him other may- other than maybe, of course, he is married. And then as the relationship progresses, he becomes, um, you know, jealous and hires a private investigator to, to follow her. Well, but, yes. You know. And that is because she begins cheating on her sugar daddy who is cheating on his wife. But, you know, the rules of sugar daddy is she yeah. cannot. And she meets a guy named Shane and she tells Rohan she's sick and can't see him for 10 days. And within those 10 days, she and Shane fall in love. Yes. And she tells Shane, I have a sugar daddy. This is never going to be a relationship. He says, yes, okay, great. And then after 10 days, when Rohan calls her, Shane punches a hole in her wall. (laughs) And yes, yes. And threatens to call Rohan and tell him everything, which I I don't, I don't know if this needs to be said, but I just want to say it. If anyone can ever punch or hit an object, that's that's it. You're done. You got to walk done. away. You yeah. got to walk away. This is yeah. the and it only gets a thousand times worse. She says, I chose drama over sobriety, Shane over the fashion line, Shane over Rohan. She's sleeping with Shane in Rohan's Hamptons mansion. Somehow in the middle of this, she graduates from community college and becomes a student at the new school, which is no fucking joke. No, that's hard to get into. That we will never hear about the new school again. No, no, it's never brought up. What'd you even study? How did you get in? Uh, yeah. But also, I'm curious about her money in general right now, because it, this is also when she gives $25,000 to Shane to invest in his nightclub business. Yes, and it's something like a buildup of dominatrix checks, even though she said her dad stole most of them. And I, But I do think it's all Rohan. I think it's all Rohan's money. I think it has to be, yeah. Also, just want to note again, her dad stole all of her dominatrix money, the dedication in the book. It always just comes back to that for me. You're but anyway. so right. You're so right. <laughs> There's and just a lot of stuff there with a the dad. A lot of stuff. Yeah. And th- the Shane relationship is horrific, really abusive. Mm-hmm. Rohan starts getting abusive and, and having her followed and threatening to break up with her if she doesn't break up with Shane. Her friend's financial livelihoods are on the line because she's done this nice thing with the fashion line and bringing them along. But now they're like... We can't let you get caught with Shane because then that's our resource gone. And she tells Rohan, uh, quote, I'm an addict. I have mental problems. I'm sick. I need help. And I will stop seeing Shane. And then she continues to. She becomes an investor in his club. There's a ton of club drama. She says she storms out of the club one night and texts him 
like to find somewhere else to sleep, demanding my apartment keys back as he's no longer welcome at my place. I'm livid he, when he replies with a thumbs up emoji, which I was like, this is, I love these details. Yep. And then Shane physically assaults her in the club. Badly. Like beating her. People are watching. And then she goes back into the psych ward at New York Presbyterian uh, Hospital. And then she gets an email from ABC Carpet and Home. Since Rohan's credit card is linked to my account, any purchases he makes get sent to my email. But this order, an overpriced console table, is for a girl named Sabrina on the Upper East Side. She calls him up. My, 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 how the tables turn, I say in a chilling tone. I'm coming to you now, I tell him, and I hang up. She goes, I arrive at Rohan's office armed with a long list of demands. You have to continue to pay for my apartment, car, school, and business. Again, she is still in school. Yeah. I want a weekly allowance and you have to keep paying Liana's salary. Absolutely not, he says. Why should I? My eye starts twitching as I suppress my rage. Through my clenched jaw, I managed to say, it's called spousal support. I was with you for five years. I give you the best years of my life. And if you don't take care of me, I promise I will make your life a living hell. And... He, I mean, pages and chapters later, she'll be like, Rohan is still paying for my apartment. Yeah. Which, listen, get it. My oh, God. I respected that whole move. I don't disagree with yeah. her. They were, you know, in their situation for five years, and that's a long time. And I don't disagree with her that I think that she should have gotten some sort of spousal support. I mean, the fact that she pulled it off. Incredible. Is amazing. Yeah. Well, then we go straight into more and more Shane drama. So even after the assault, she's trying to get back with him or make him jealous. There is an A-list actor who she brings to their joint club that Shane runs that she's an investor in. Who do you think the A-list actor was? Leonardo DiCaprio. That is who I wrote. I wrote down Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. No way it's not. He was described as a handsome actor in a baseball cap. And if you remember at that time, Leo was always in those New York clubs, always in always, a baseball hat. Yes. Yeah. And there's a little detail she writes about him of like, Maybe it was just the fact that she was 25 at the time. Mm -hmm. She was 25. I was like, this is Leonardo DiCaprio. And oh, yeah. then Shane assaults her in the club again. Page six calls her and she says she starts singing like a bird. And she wakes up one day and Liana says, check your text now. I click on a screenshot of an Instagram account impersonating me. The handle is at Mistress Valentina. I said, real bummer, you didn't get that handle. You know what I mean? Like missed opportunity. That's missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And the bio is a list of all my specialties, including ass worship and golden showers, which are things she actually did. And the account follows her employees, people she works with, professionally, acquaintances, even family members. And she says she leaps up from the massage table. That's right, she's getting a massage. <laughs> And she heads straight to the Instagram office in the East Village. How does she know where that office is? I, I feel like maybe it wasn't her first time there. <laughs> I, I, yeah, she knows that city. Oh, my God. Yeah, she it's does. like the clinic. Sure. Yep. And there's nothing they can do. And she says she's exposed. And she doesn't know what to do. And she says, I ordered 200 hissing cockroaches from Madagascar and convinced my old friend Serena to release them in the club in exchange for a hundred bucks. But before the cockroaches arrive, a reporter from page six calls me from a private number. And then she's sort of getting, I guess, canceled before it was canceling, but only on the New York It Girl scene. I do want to note, I'm almost positive I was living in New York City at the exact same time of this happening. And I was watching old DVDs of Lost season two in my apartment, not going out, eating ice cream, <laughs> like, wow, the life she is living. I guess that was available to me, but I was just such a huge loser. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I, I also think it was interesting that she was releasing these hiss- hissing cockroaches. I mean, she was still technically an, an investor. And she does at one point talk about trying to get her money back. And yeah. I don't think she ever did. No, I um, think they do say they'll buy her out. They say they would, but there was never any confirmation that it ever happened. I see. Yeah. Okay. But it also should be noted that she was pregnant by Shane at this time also. And had an abortion. Yeah. After he was, again, wildly abusive to her physically in public. Yes. Yes. And I I looked up the articles, the page six account. It's all there. It all seemed like it was really, really high drama in the East Village, in the it girl scene. And she says, I'm going to write a book about my own life. Yes. She pulls the missing persons poster, the the details with Ace, the psychiatric hospital visits, being a dominatrix. She says, I'm going to tell my own story. Yes. She prints the book. She sells it at art fairs. She t- says, fuck all you guys. I won't be shamed for re- being a dominatrix. I'm going to tell my own story. I said, theme of the podcast. It's the theme <laughs> of the podcast. And then she says, I lost interest in New York entirely. It no longer feels like home. New York betrayed me. I decide yes. to give up my share of our fashion line. I can't do it anymore. And then she writes the sentence. I sell the Birkin bag Rohan bought me for my 23rd birthday with the money. I buy a vintage Mercedes Benz from a friend for $5,000 and call the only person I know who will drop anything in an instant for a fun adventure. Harmony. And this is where we were like, who's Harmony? And they go to the Louisiana Bayou for months and months and months. I'm going to skip the Louisiana section because it's just a lot. We got to keep it moving. Yeah. And she comes back (laughs) and she puts on, she's like, I'm back, New York. And she comes back. She's like, I'm back, New York. Yep. And she puts on an art show that is her funeral. Yes. Which is a cool fucking art show. She wears all white. I found the photos. She looks gorgeous. It's curated by someone else, but it is the funeral of Julia Fox. And in this time, she's back. She's going to AA. She is stopping doing drugs while Harmony continues When she goes to AA, she spots Shane with a new girlfriend. She raises her hand, says, I feel uncomfortable here. Shane says, you can't do this to me. He says, meet me for lunch. She says, what? Yes. Yes, I will. And then they talk about how horrible their relationship was. They go back to her apartment. They have sex. I said, yep. No, no, no more Shane. And then she writes, we laugh, ignoring our recklessness, disregarding the fact that we tore this city in half with our love. I said, don't call it love. It's not romantic and good. Come on. Like, is she writing this in the in the moment, in the first person in the moment that it's like in that moment she viewed it that way? Or does she still view it that way? She writes this sentence on the next page. You'd think I'd be upset at the ultimate demise of Shane and me having been given another chance, but actually I'm the happiest I've ever been. So this is sort of her pulling out and and telling us her overall thought on the relationship. And so when she's writing that it was love, that has to be her true thought on it, right? Has to be. Okay. Then she meets Gianna and Gianna is going to be a huge character in her life. A new best friend has a heartbreaking ending. She's a big part of her, the back half of her life, even though it's only a handful of, of pages on this. So let me try and recap it. She talks about Gianna. Then the next page, she's been cast in uncut gems and Gianna is with her constantly. And I think it's quite frankly incredible that with this little knowledge of the business, she is going to end up the star of a giant movie with Adam Sandler and she and Gianna are going to run all over set and like memorize lines and like do the acting together. Yeah. 
So what was your impression of how Josh Safdie wanted her to be in the role and, and wrote the role for her? I think what confused me a little bit was what their relationship was prior. There was no kind of backstory to how they knew each other. She just kind of talked about how he would send her scripts and she would give him notes. And then suddenly it was like, you have to be in this movie. You have to play this role. And he really did fight for her. And here's what I'll say. The idea that he could get her that part in that movie is wild. Because it's Adam Sandler starring. They wanted someone like Lady Gaga or Jen Lawrence, somebody who was kind of of that ilk, For him to be able to win that battle with the studio, I don't know what he would have had to have done, but it is wild to me that he was able to make it happen. But then again, it brings me back to why was he so passionate? Give us any context about what your connection was with this person. Yes, I totally agree with all of that. It really, it's such an incredible miracle that she got that role. I am currently casting a film I am directing and the stuff people say to you about who should be cast or not makes me want to drill a hole into the center of the earth and bury my soul there so that I don't have to (laughs) live through the realities of Hollywood. I can't even begin to describe how bad it is. Like, how is anything made? So yes, it's a miracle to the point where I think Uncut Gems must have been more lower budget. And because Adam Sandler was such a star, they were able to swing a lead that wasn't hugely famous and or all the leads that they wanted maybe said no. I think that that had to have happened too. Yeah. And it's possible that Josh gave something up. He gave up some amount of money or... I don't even think that. I I think it had to have been like, Jennifer Lawrence doesn't want to do this movie and neither does Lady Gaga. It's a smaller role. Look, Adam Sandler will swing it. I bet Adam Sandler had to push for it. Well, if I may quote Julia's writing at this point, this is regarding her two-day-long screen test. I was quick and witty. I was able to keep up with fucking Adam Sandler and not just keep up with him, challenge him, push him, bring out the best in him. This is tough for me. (laughs) Look, you know, it's just... I'm Canadian and we're humble folk and and I am not against someone, especially a woman talking positively about herself. I'm all for it. But it's just interesting to me, like the words that people choose when they're recounting their own stories, right? Yeah. And I would just be very curious to hear what his take was on that. Yes, very true. It sounded a little Delulu. However, I also think there is something to, like you said, people are so quick to take away credit from a woman, especially a first timer, especially a young woman. And I have at times wanted to say like, oh my God, I'm the worst. What if I'm not good enough for this job or whatever? And what I say is I'm the best for the job because I know you guys are already saying, I can't even tell you I feel insecure because that'll be used against me. Maybe that is what she's doing here of like, I have to prove it to you because I know you're going to say this anyway. She was good in that movie. She was great in that movie. Yeah. Well, she and Gianna kind of, they're on drugs the whole time. Yeah. And then she says, the night of the rap party at the Jane Hotel is so much fun that between all the alcohol and weed, I can't remember it. All I have are the moments I managed to capture on my phone. Gianna and me posing with some members of the crew, Gianna and me drunk and wrestling on the couch, and then a single photo of me in a corner talking to a really gorgeous, tall, well-dressed Russian man who I would go on to marry less than two months after that night. That's a great introduction. Amazing. That said, we're not going to get a lot. You don't get a lot of it. No. I think the one other thing I just want to talk about, about this time, when she talks about Jonna coming to set, and then it's like, Jonna's always in the way, getting yelled at to get out of the shot. 
she talks about how John is like she's supposed to be helping her learn her lines, but then she's off schmoozing with different people. And I just think, again, because I can't stop trying to make psychology connections happen. I'm like, when she continues on talking about Jana later into the book, et cetera, she talks about her as though this is like this angel human who was the greatest thing that ever happened to her, that she loved her so much. And I'm like, she kind of treated you like shit during that time. She saw that you were cast in this movie that was with Adam Sandler, was this huge deal. She kind of inserted herself and didn't really come and help you out. She just hung out and schmoozed with everybody and talked to everybody and got in the way. But Julia never acknowledges that. And it brings me back to the dedication of the book, where it's like mm. these people that she holds as these high-regarding people in her life treated her like crap. But then Veronica, pre-dad sex, Veronica, who was someone who genuinely loved her, she got annoying. Mm. Rohan, who genuinely wanted to take care of her, doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. You see these patterns where it's yeah. like... It's interesting to me that, again, not that Gianna necessarily, I'm not suggesting she was a bad person or abusive or anything even close, but it was just interesting to me that she it never really seemed to, like, clock for her. For me, it was the writing. Like, the love story between her and Gianna happens too fast. Because yes. we don't get to fall in love with her no. the way Julia, I think, did. Because it's too fast. And then they're going to have a friendship breakup. But it's a page after she writes this sentence. Our bond transcends anything either of us had ever felt before. It's more than friendship. And sometimes I feel as though I gaslit her into thinking it wasn't anything more as soon as I met Andrew. And the husband comes in the way. And there's a little hint of it being maybe romantic she said I would be lying in bed da, 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 and sometimes I'd look over at her and wonder if she was the one and so I wonder if it was romantic but it, it is that type of female best friendship that I'm always seeking stories on that I have certainly felt before in my life it's the Oprah Gale thing where people are like totally. well it has to be sexual because we can't understand this love yes. and she she definitely has that with her it's just we didn't get it with her yeah and so I'm going to recap a lot of story right now. <laughs> it's a lot so we can discuss it. It may get confusing. Again, doing my best. Here we go. She has a friendship breakup and the breakup is because Andrew, who again is abusive and awful to her, gets in the way of their friendship and then they divorce. Then she gets back together with Andrew. In that time, she gets pregnant with her son. She's going to have an abortion when she hears that Gianna passed away. She overdosed. Yes. And she takes some sort of tests or something with the pregnancy. She finds out that the due date is Gianna's birthday. Yes. And it's her sign to keep the child. And she said, the pain of her death takes a huge toll in my marriage. I push Andrew away completely, lashing out at him and blaming him for her death. I can't shake the feeling that if I hadn't fallen in love with him, I probably would have been with her that night and maybe even been able to save her. But Andrew reminds me that if I hadn't fallen in love with him, I might not be here either. He's not wrong. And then there's just, there's a lot of really beautiful writing about Gianna and how she has a dream that Gianna comes to her and tells her she's having a boy and she is having a boy. And she did not call this out. So I'm curious if you caught this. She names her son Valentino. Her dominatrix name, Valentina. Yeah. I gotta say, I loved it. I know that's <laughs> not going to be the take for everyone. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, listen, I know. I was like, okay, <laughs> we're giving a nod. We're nodding a different time in your life. How about it? Yeah, well, and then the Andrew stuff is just, 
absolutely off the walls. She posts about Amina Dead Be Dead on Instagram. She takes it back on Instagram and on the book, but he is bad. And then we're kind of at the end of the book, and this is Kanye. Yes. Give me your overall feeling of Kanye. It's interesting because it feels like such a non-story. Given the wild, wild life that this woman has lived, knowing what we know of Kanye, if you're a Kardashian's watcher, guilty, um, it didn't strike me as being that wild for him, the idea that he would have this real opinion about how she would dress and would hire stylists and have racks of clothes. Like, that is, we've seen that over the course of the Kardashians with Kim for years. So none of it really felt that odd to me. I guess the thing that really stood out was that it felt so orchestrated by him from the very beginning. And I'm curious, is it just revenge? Was that ultimately his goal was just like, I'm just going to find someone and get photographed with them a bunch and that's it? Like the first time they kind of hang out alone, he's like, do you want to be my girlfriend and go public? They don't really know each other. Yeah, Um, yeah. it's interesting because- The details she includes makes it outstandingly clear it was a transaction. Yes. It was a transactional purchase. Yes. Um, Do the divorce tour with me. Make Kim mad. We're not even going to have sex. And he communicates to her through his assistant and wants to dress her and do all the makeovers and stuff. And I'm curious if they did have sex, though, because she never outwardly says we never had sex. I mean, this book is erotica. (laughs) I don't disagree. Some of the sex scenes are like... I was like, oh my God, I have to read this in private because you shouldn't be in public reading these words. Yes, I was on a plane. It felt wrong. Um, But I just, I don't know. I'm not completely sold. I don't know. I'm curious about that. Okay, yeah, I I hear that. She doesn't sign the NDA. He asked her to sign, which is why she can write this. She calls him the artist, interestingly. And this is the thing with the book. Everything makes it clear that he is just faking this relationship with her, but she never says it. Yeah. She almost writes it as if like she thought it was going to be a real relationship and then it wasn't. However, she gets her friends hooked up to be his stylist and they've made it big. And like it's Liana and Tammy, who is a character that she has been living with. And then he calls her one day and he says he had a good conversation with his soon to be ex-wife and discovered a lot of information about me. I didn't know you were a drug addict, he says, as if I duped him. I told you, maybe if you listened more and not to mention, so were you. At this point, I'm yelling. I told you I didn't want to go public because he wanted to go public like within six days. He remained silent for once. You said you wouldn't embarrass me. I refuse to let him hear me crying. So I hang up and tell my publicist to inform the press that we are over. Shortly after my million dollar Italian denim deal falls through as well. It's contingent on you being his girlfriend, I'm informed. And like, that's kind of the Kanye stuff. And then She's in a fog and she finds out that Harmony died from overdosing and that she's done so much drugs throughout her life and all her close friends have died. Yes. Except for her. And she's like, how did this happen to me? Yeah. And her kind of talking about going through Harmony's apartment after the fact was was chilling. I mean, she's like, I found a gun, so I took it. I was like, that's not anything I would recommend doing. Yeah. And this is a woman who's already been in a giant Hollywood movie. Yeah. But it's interesting, too, because then she talks about, like, the pandemic hitting, and she's like, well, I guess this was it. That's when I knew it was, like, the acting career would be whatever, kind of implying that it's like, well, I guess it's over. And I was like, why? Yeah, but I I do think she's, I think she's transcended it. She's now a personality. She's a cultural figure. She's back to, like, being an artist, making a book about her life, except now it's published in our our hands. Right. And we're at the very end of the book, and she's very funny in that she says, like, 
I'm being purposely excluded from the conversation when I single-handedly started every trend of 2022. <laughs> I, I guess I wouldn't know that because you said you're being excluded, but like what a sentence to include. Yeah. But then her whole thing is sometimes you have to throw your life down the drain to start over and, and see what happens. And the book is called Down the Drain. And all I can think is like, that is not the theme of this book. Not at all. And she's writing it as if, I think the funeral was when she threw her life down the drain and started again. But that is not how I read it. The theme is living in the drain. Currently, then, now, past, present, clawing your way out of the drain and you can't. And everyone's just pushing you back down. But instead, she writes it like, thank God I restarted my life. And sometimes you have to do that to find out who you really are. I was like, but you restarted your life like a thousand times. You've lived a thousand lives. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like it, it felt like the end theme kind of got shoved in. Yes. I agree. I do love her picture on the back of the book yes. where she has become like a, a bodybuilder. It's a shocking photo. It's latex. It's a bikini. It, I, I was like, whoa, that is a photo. Yeah, she's gone for it there. And of course, the, that, that last line, I believe, of the book was, but now everyone is wearing latex. It's a great last line, I thought. She said, I was ridiculed for being different and for doing whatever I had to do to survive, but now everyone is wearing latex. I didn't even know she started latex, but I loved it as a sentence. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so we end every podcast with something I call the book dull test. Oh. Okay, three questions. First question, mm -hmm. was the author vulnerable in the sharing of her truth? I think so. I think she was, yeah. I think she gave us every, every thought and feeling. Second question, was it entertaining to read? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, it felt like riding a roller coaster. It really does. It, it's like, what could possibly happen next? <laughs> yes. And, and your wildest dreams will be, you know, surpassed. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And last question is, did reading this book elevate your life in any way? Um, I mean, look, I, I know that I came in very hot talking about how I was like, I found some of the writing like disjointed, et cetera. But like, ultimately I've always rooted for her, but I'm also someone I root for any woman that is like, I am making my own way and making something out of nothing. I think it's amazing. And I'm happy to, su to support it and hear the story. And I guess maybe it elevated my life in the way that I didn't know that things were that extreme for 12 year olds in New York in the early 2000s. And now I do. I've, I've learned something. <laughs> I, I love that answer. And yeah, I, I will say it definitely elevated my life. It, it's the lesson you learn over and over and over again, which is that I read that quote about her in that magazine and I thought, oh my God, this stuck up woman who believes she is a muse. And to read this book, it's like, of course, of course, if you are saying that in, in a magazine, there's so much more to you. And I loved just reading this book and being like, I was so wrong about her and she's lived through so much and she really did whatever it took to survive and like, fuck you yeah out of that. It's, it's just such a good reminder of like, yeah, every time you're like, oh, that girl's being weird. And it's like, there's a reason. Oh, there's always there's a reason. always a reason. Yes. <laughs> Lauren, tell everyone again where they can find your podcast, listen to you, talk about the blanket women. Please. It's True Crime and Cocktails. You can listen to it anywhere you get podcasts. We're also on Instagram at True Crime and Cocktails. And uh, please, the holidays are upon us, dear dear listeners. Uh, sad this Christmas three-song EP. Get it wherever you listen to music. It's a, it's a romp. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. This was a treat. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know I might have been born just plain white trash, but fancy words are my name. That's
that's all for this week's episode. If you loved this episode, if you found yourself talking back, if you found yourself disagreeing, you want to say something, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Chelsea Fontes. Links in the show notes. Join the book club. That's where the book club is. You can comment on the post and get into discussions. There is a whole chat on the Patreon app, all sorts of things. And you get bonus episodes and ad-free listening. And yeah, go there and do that. This episode was produced by Corinne Wallace, our original Celebrity Book Club producer. Back on our days with a network. She's now independent with us, baby. And our episode engineer, Marcus Hom, our producer, Kate Downey, our executive producer, Jordan Moncada, and our assistant, Jaren Padre. We'll see you soon for another juicy book.